This is an ABC podcast. When was the last time you successfully made, changed or broke a habit? I mean, I feel like I'm my own worst enemy when it comes to my habits. I have tried many different ways to to stop chewing gum and I just, I can't do it. I love it. So I don't drink like regular coffee anymore. Like I'll have a decaf. I'm always trying to take up meditation daily. I've never been able to make that happen. I would really like to take up an instrument. (laughs) How much headway have you made on that habit? Literally none. I feel like I'm a person who spends my whole life trying to make and change my habits. It's just like, oh my God, here we go again. Habits are notoriously hard to change. Who among us hasn't failed at one resolution or another? Going to the gym more often, meditating daily, eating healthier. These all take time, effort and motivation. But there's more to the story for why habits are so hard to change. Hi, I'm Sana Kadar, and you're listening to All in the Mind. Today, we're going to be chatting to BJ Fogg, the founder of the Behaviour Design Lab at Stanford University, about his new book, Tiny Habits. But first, why are habits so hard to change? The first thing to realise about habits is that they're essentially acquired reflexes. Bernard Belaine is the director of the Decision Neuroscience Lab at the University of New South Wales. So if you have a reflexive series of behaviours, like there's the classic is, uh, you know, the patella reflex. You know, you get knocked on the knee and your leg flexes, that kind of uh, reflex. Those are things that are um, hardwired in. A habit is something that is very similar in essence once it's acquired. It is a sort of hardwired response to a particular stimulus. And um, as a consequence, they are very inflexible, very invariant. So say, for example, your stimulus is walking past a cafe where you usually get your morning coffee and a muffin. Hi, can I get a flat white? And uh, a muffin too, why not? If your goal is to stop eating so many muffins, Bernard says you're in for a bit of a struggle. You realise, you know, if I go in there, I'm going to get coffee, which would be great, but I'm probably always going to have to resist really strongly buying some kind of uh, sweet uh, cake or something, you know. And so you think, well, I'd rather just not have to put up with it at all. And yet, you know, all of these things are going through your mind just due to the evoking stimulus, you know. These are constantly hitting us all the time. In fact, you could regard 90% of what we do as kind of, you know, resisting or or giving in to (laughs) these sort of reflexive behaviours. And the resistance is kind of interesting because that's the more intentional part of our behaviour, right? We're sort of going, no... No, I'm not going to do that. And that's, that requires a great deal of deliberation and intention, you know, to stop yourself behaving in a way that you've acquired through practice in the past. So that's where we mostly see, you know, most of our intentional behaviour is in redirecting our previously acquired and not very useful habits. Yeah. In that case, is it fair to say it's harder to um, change habits or break habits rather than make new ones? Yeah, that's much harder, yes. But acquiring new habits is um, not a complicated process. One way in which voluntary behaviour or deliberative behaviour becomes habitual is by tying it in with other action. So, you know, they become associated together with other things that you do. 
And uh, as a consequence, they become elicited by those other routines. You know, like um, in the evening, you take your clothes off and you brush your teeth, sort of bedtime kind of routine or something like that. So you have <laughs> two sequences of behavior that may become linked and they, that could be a useful thing. So if we know habits are hard to change, but linking new habits to existing behaviours can help, how do you go about actually doing that? Stanford researcher BJ Fogg thinks he's found a way. He's developed what he calls the tiny habits method, and he's written a book by the same name. Here's an example of how it's worked in his own life. Some years ago, BJ decided he needed to get more active. Well, getting toward my 50s, I knew that I would naturally lose muscle mass and bone density and that resistance training was important. And also, I'm vain like everybody, right? I want to look good. I want to feel like I'm younger. I want to feel stronger. So he resolved to do push-ups every day. But push-ups just seemed like a really easy, accessible thing. I don't need any equipment, whatever. So far, sounds standard. But the strategy he devised in order to stick to his new habit was creative to say the least. He decided that every time he went to the bathroom to pee, he'd do two push-ups afterwards. I know, it's so weird. And I kept that a secret for a few years because it's like, uh, do I really want to tell people that? It, it's, it's an exploration process. So I knew, okay, not 10 push-ups, not 20 push-ups, two. I can do two. And it's like, where does this fit? Does it fit after I start the coffee maker? No, I was too groggy. Does it fit after I arrive at my office at Stanford? No. And so you just think, well, where might this fit? And I just tried it. After I pee, I do two push-ups. And then I figured, hey, I pee probably four or five times a day. I can do push-ups four or five times a day. Now, what I don't do is I don't do them at night. So if I get up at three in the morning and pee, I don't do them at night. So it's during the day when I'm at home, I'm doing push-ups. And it's a habit that's stuck. BJ's still doing post-pee push-ups years later. Two push-ups remain his baseline, but often he'll do more. Even within the first week, I did five or eight or maybe 12. But then even now, years later, there's times when I'll just do two because I'm busy or tired. So I just do the two push-ups and go on. So there's a real flexibility to the method. That's his tiny habits method in a nutshell. You break down a goal into a very small, achievable task, then you figure out where you can work it into your existing routine. But this only works, BJ says, for habits you really want to have. Too often, people pick habits they think they should have, and that's where they run into problems. Like, oh, I should be walking 10,000 steps a day. I don't want to walk, but I should. Shoulds do not reliably become a habit. That's number one. And then two, just somehow fantasizing that you're going to pick something really hard and then you're going to keep yourself motivated. If it's a difficult behavior, uh, such as you're going to write, you know, writing a novel and you're going to write for an hour a day, that takes a lot of motivation to sustain and it's very hard to sustain motivation because uh, we're human beings and our motivation goes up and down over time. And so that's not a good approach to change. And often people, yeah, feel it's a personal failing when they don't succeed. But you're trying to shift that idea. You say it's, it's not about willpower. 
Yeah, and that's why I say it's the most unfortunate piece because when people trust that here's how I change and they can't do it, yeah, they blame themselves and that they lose confidence, they lose motivation to change, they procrastinate, trying and there's all these negative effects. And so in part, my work these days is about setting out and saying, hey, it's not your fault you couldn't change in the past. You just weren't given the right way. So what are tiny habits then, and how does your approach address all that? Yeah, so tiny habits is a radically different approach. And essentially, you take any behavior you want or have any aspiration. Now, notice it's something you want, not something you should have. And then you make it really, really simple. So let's say you want to write more. Rather than setting yourself for an hour a day, maybe all you do is write one sentence. And so you make it super tiny, and then you find where it fits naturally in your day. And maybe you take the bus to work. Um, and so after you sit down on the bus, that's where it might fit. Then you write that one sentence. Now, if you want to do more, you can. You always can do more. But the habit or the baseline is just one sentence. So you get that done and you feel successful about it. So you make it tiny. You find where it fits in your life. What does it come after? And then you help yourself feel successful. Those are the three hacks you do to wire habits in. It, it seems, I mean, it seems a bit ridiculous almost to celebrate a change so small, but why is that important? Well, the emotion that you feel, the feeling of success is what wires the habit into our brain. I'll just describe it in everyday terms and I'll give a more technical explanation. When you do a behavior, whether it's one push-up or flossing one tooth or writing one sentence and you feel successful, your brain goes, wow, that felt good. I want to do that again. I want to remember to do that again. So that's kind of the fun explanation. The more technical explanation is that when you feel an emotion, and the more intense, the better, it changes the regulation of dopamine in your brain. So you're hacking your brain through that emotion, and it rewires your brain. The lamination around the neurons associated with that behavior changes, making that behavior more likely, more automatic. And that's what a habit is, is an automatic behavior. So it's emotions that create habits. It's not repetition. And that's another way people have been set up to fail. Thinking, oh, it's just 21 days. That's not what creates the habit. It's the emotion your brain associates with that behavior. And what I found in the tiny habits method and on myself and then later <laughs> for the last nine years teaching it to thousands of people is that you can hack that emotion. And it's a technique in tiny habits that I call celebration. And so you're hacking your brain to wire the habit in. And BJ says by making the habit tiny, you make it achievable. That even on days when you're really busy, or say you're sick, or say you're stressed out, or say you're distracted by something else, even on the worst of days, you can still get it done. So you set yourself up for success. You set the baseline so low that you can do it. Now, if that's all you do on any given day, that's fine, and you feel good about that. But most of the time, you'll actually do more than one sentence. You'll do more than floss one tooth. You'll do more than one push-up. But you count that as extra credit. You don't keep raising the bar on yourself. You keep the bar low. So every day you can succeed no matter what else is going on in your life, but you can always do more. And the habit will naturally grow. You will naturally do more and you'll do it more often. 
You also write in the book that a lot of behavioral goals are aspirational. And so you need to be as specific with the goal you're trying to achieve as possible. Um, how yeah. does one drill down to the real bare bones specifics? Really important. Almost always when we want to change or we want to change others, we start with something that's vague and abstract. So let's just talk about in our own life, we might say, oh, I want to reduce my stress. Okay, that's a great thing to focus on, but it's an abstraction. You, what does that mean in terms of an actual behavior? So in Tiny Habits, I share a step-by-step method where you can take that aspiration, and it's a great one, reduce my stress, then how do you figure out what the right new habit is for you? And there's a process of exploring the options, and I call it magic wanding, and there's a way to do that systematically. So you come up with 20 or 30 different ways to reduce your stress. Once you have all those options, then you choose among them. What is the best one or the best few for you? Now, contrast that to how most people do it. They'll say, oh, I'm going to reduce my stress, therefore I must meditate. They just jump to this conclusion. Well, meditation probably isn't the right habit for everybody. So instead, you can go through a process and say, oh, instead of meditating, what's right for me is playing fetch with my dog for 10 minutes. And so the good match, and I call these golden behaviors, will have three criteria. It's something that will have impact. So in this case, it will actually reduce your stress. Number two, it's something you want to do. So maybe you don't want to meditate, so don't pick things you don't want. And number three, it's something you can do. So the best combination of it's impactful, you want to do, and you, and you can do it, that's what's a golden behavior for you. So you don't guess at what new habits. Instead, there's a step-by-step -step process to figure out what is going to be the best for you. And then you go into this process of making it really tiny, and then where does it fit naturally in your life? To figure out where it fits, BJ says to think about what might be an effective prompt. The prompt is a routine you already do, like sitting down on the bus reminds you to write a sentence in your novel. Brushing reminds you to floss. So you find something you already do to be the reminder for the new habit you want. You get very clear about where does this new habit fit. And if it doesn't fit where you thought it would, that's fine. The big part of the tiny habits method is you practice it and then you revise it if it's not working. So it's a process of figuring out where does this new habit fit in the normal routine of my day. This process of selecting a tiny habit, working it into your day, then celebrating your success, it builds on another concept called the habit loop, which suggests that routines are made up of three parts, a cue, a behavior, and a reward. And according to BJ, his method works. Well, the five-day program that I started offering in 2011, it's free and I still offer it today and about 60,000 people have gone through it. And I, of those, I've coached about 45,000 myself. Within five days, people report that at least one of their habits became automatic or very automatic. So this is the vast majority of people, over 70%. 80% of people plus report that doing these habits, even though they're tiny, led to other changes. There were ripple effects. And of that 80%, about 18%, uh, we'll just say one-fifth, of those people report that they made big changes within those five days. And then I ask, so that's quantitative measures. Then I ask a qualitative question, and they fill in the blank to, 
to this sentence. After doing tiny habits, I now see I'm the kind of person who, and then they fill in the blank. And very rarely, like 5% of the people say, oh, I now see I'm the kind of person who can't even do this. But that's it's very, very small. The vast majority of people say, I now say I'm the kind of person who can change. I'm the kind of person who can follow through. And that's the confidence that gets built even within five days. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar, and I'm chatting to BJ Fogg. He's the founder of the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford University and the author of the book, Tiny Habits which is all about making new routines easier to adopt. But there are, of course, other ways people go about establishing habits in their lives. It's not as though no one has ever successfully changed a habit before. So we asked some colleagues around the ABC about what worked for them. Hello, I'm Carl Smith. I'm a science journalist at the ABC. Uh, A habit I've managed to change is uh, getting into running. This is an older one, and it, it kind of started because of love. So I was 16 years old, and I just had my first serious girlfriend. And she was fantastic at running. She was a cross-country runner. And I decided that I was going to try to, I think, impress her. I can't really quite interrogate like what I was doing at the time, but I think impress her by like getting into running. So the first thing that I did was... I just forced myself to get out every day and run whenever she was doing it and to run in places that were beautiful so that it kind of distracted me from the fact that I was, you know, heaving and in immense pain. And then also figuring out like a routine of doing it early in the morning. And I think I'm a bit stupider when I wake up or like less able to come up with excuses. And so I took up running and I was awful at it. She would just sprint ahead of me and run off into the distance But eventually I got better and I've now been running for 15 years. But the girlfriend's long gone. Yeah, long gone. (laughs) My name's Edwina. I am a video journalist with ABC Life. Okay, I have successfully stopped biting my nails. I can consider myself an adult now. And the way I did that was it wasn't what anyone told me. It wasn't any nagging ex-boyfriends. It was literally committing to paying $50 every fortnight to have them lined with plastic so I could not buy them. So it's been successful so far, but I am really worried that when I can no longer afford to get my nails done, which is definitely going to happen, that then I'll just revert to old habits and, yeah, I'll be walking around with bleeding fingers again, which is not the sexiest look, but, you know, got to own it. I have tried giving up caffeine or coffee specifically because I was having like three a day and I realised at that time that I was just really anxious and caffeine was just kind of like making it worse. Like I wasn't sleeping very well and I was like, okay, maybe I should, you know, try and get on top of this before it really wrecks me. So I tried to go cold turkey Um, And that kind of didn't work at the time. And then I was like, oh, let me just get into one coffee, which really helped. But then I was like, well, now that I'm down to one coffee, surely I can just go like decaf or even no coffee. Just kind of weaning myself off was the smarter thing to do. So I don't drink like regular coffee anymore. Like I'll have a decaf. So it allows me to still have the social side of coffee. And the taste of decaf is exactly the same I find now to regular coffee. So I'm like... So I still get to have the coffee, 
Sometimes I struggle when I'm kind of feeling tired during the day, like, oh, you know, this would be the time where I'd have a coffee and I'd get that buzz. But now I think of like, okay, well, you know, present Luke might find that like a nice thing to do, but 1am Luke isn't going to enjoy that. That's Luke Tribe, a graphic designer at ABC Life. Back to Stanford researcher BJ Fogg, and I asked him what kinds of goals people typically use his tiny habits method for. Uh, certainly uh, habits around nutrition. You know, people really do aspire to lose weight, whether that's the right habit or not. And so in Tiny Habits, the book, I challenge that. In some ways, I say, is it really weight loss you want, or is it more energy, or is it to look better to your friends or whatnot? So, but... You know, when people are doing the simpler five-day program, they jump to that. Uh, people want to sleep better. They want to reduce their stress. Um, they want to be more productive in things that matter. So those are all high-level aspirations. And part of the method is to take that and then boil it down to exactly the right habits to help them achieve that. Now, in, in, at Stanford, in my research lab, we did three separate studies to figure out what are the aspirations people have. What do people want? And depending on the sample, it was really different. In one sample, weight loss was a, a, a near the top. In a different sample, it was in the middle. And the top two items in that research was people want to be financially secure. And they want to, the second one, prepare their children to succeed in the real world. So, you know, it's really not up to me to tell people what they should be wanting. And so in Tiny Habits, what I tell people is like, take anything you want, and here's the process. Here's the method where you can make that a reality. But when it comes to breaking habits, especially addiction-related ones, BJ is clear that the Tiny Habits method isn't always suitable. The caveat is this. If, if somebody has a habit that is life-threatening or really damaging, what I want to be very clear about here, and I'm very clear about it in the book Tiny Habits, is get professional help. And too often, there have been journalists who have written books and bloggers who have written books and non-experts who I think have misled people and trivialized addiction. And yeah, addictions are different. And man, if that's something that somebody listening to this is facing, get the right professional to help you. Yes, Tiny Habits and what in the book is, is beneficial, but take it really seriously. He's passionate about this because of his own family's experience with addiction. In the book, he writes about his nephew, who died of an accidental drug overdose in 2008. So he had been lured into drugs by a wrestling coach and one thing led to another and he was trying so hard to stay sober and clean and he had for a few months. He was off and on. He was a few months off of drugs and then something snapped and he went back to his old dose and died. And that was devastating, devastating. So I just, I want people to really, I don't want to mislead people like some other, uh, a book, if you have this kind of challenge, a, you got to get the right kind of professional help and really take, there's certain kind of addictions that really take seriously. Bernard Belain from the Decision Neuroscience Lab at the University of New South Wales agrees. You can't motivate yourself out of an addiction. And a lot of the management of those kinds of habits is around avoiding the stimuli that elicit those responses. 
So you know that's what you that's the best way to manage habits is to manage the um, exposure to the eliciting stimuli. Once you've got the connection, that's the point about habits, and that's really why they're so brilliant, evolutionarily speaking, but also why they're so bad and dangerous, <laughs> is that um, they are you know, extremely efficient. They emerge through practice. Why do you care about behaviour change so much? Why is something that's been of interest to you throughout your career? When I saw the transformation of my own life, going from feeling discouraged, afraid, uh, defeated, um, kind of helpless, you know, in that, um, and then by just tweaking my behaviour in these tiny ways and building the confidence, it was so transformative for me that, of course, I felt like, I need to share this with others. As for BJ's habit of doing post-pee push-ups, that's now expanded to include squats too. And the effort hasn't gone unnoticed. I was getting out of surfing the other day and a dude walked up to me and said, how old are you? And I was like, 56. He's like, man, I can't believe you're 56. And I just said, well, thanks. But uh, I could have handed him my book and said, you know what, here it is. You can do it too. It's not as hard as you think. That's B.J. Fogg, founder of the Behavior Design Lab at Stanford University and author of the book Tiny Habits. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks to producer Diane Dean and sound engineer Andrei Shabunov. You've been listening to All in the Mind. Catch you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.